1: Hello, I'm Hannah Critchlow and welcome to this month's Naked Neuroscience podcast, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. This month we're asking, is technology tweaking our brains? We'll be hearing how children as young as four are becoming so addicted to smartphones and iPads that they require psychological treatment and how parents' behaviour can precipitate the problem.
2: I do think our own attitude to giving them up, you know, engaging with them less, makes it also difficult to say to a child, you know, it's time to stop when you might be secretly checking your messages yourself.
1: Plus, we'll meet one of the world's first cyborgs, Kevin Warwick.
3: Well I've had a a number of implants. The, The most successful one, well it consisted of 100 electrodes, very small spikes which were fired into the nervous system in my left arm to link my nervous system with a computer and then onto the internet so I could experience extrasensory input, uh, learn to recognise ultrasonic signals, for example, and was really looking at uh, extending the abilities of humans by using implant technologies of that kind.
1: Today's children seem to be surrounded by technology smartphones, internet connected TVs, baby proof iPad covers, and even iPotters. A recent survey of over 1,000 families by babies.co.uk suggests that one in seven parents let their toddlers use such gadgets for four hours or more a day. Perhaps it's no surprise then that we're hearing reports of children as young as four who are receiving treatment for technology addiction. I spoke with Dr Richard Graham, consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist at the Tavistock Clinic, London. He's launched the UK's first young person's technology addiction treatment clinic.
2: In setting up these services, I wanted there to be a place that if someone had a query or a question there would be a place to turn to because i think within the health space there's been huge debate as to how serious or not these issues are but as we see the evolution of technology and the access to devices becomes even easier as they get smaller and and, you know very soon they'll be on our heads or on our wrists that i think you know there are questions at times about consumption and use where a parent might want to know where to turn so now it's very difficult with small children to use terms like addiction because you know, most children will be addicted to a teddy bear or a doll by those criteria, and will be distressed if you you take it away. So, but. The principle was that to try and get a healthy adjustment, a healthy balance to using devices and and certainly not completely restricting them.
1: According to a 2008 report by the European Union, one in every hundred children in Europe currently meet the criteria for technology addiction because when deprived they become chronically agitated and irritable. I asked Richard about treating toddlers addicted to technology.
2: Today, I was hearing from a child psychotherapist just observing how much children absolutely take notice of a parent's use of devices, and and are are fascinated by the amount of attention we as adults give to smartphones and iPads. So, uh, I suppose in thinking about this, you know, one is thinking that we we need ourselves need to to model uh, a healthy adjustment to the devices. And be aware that we're being watched by small and older children for that matter in our use of them. But in saying that, I, I, I suppose fundamentally if you feel that the use of any device, with a, you know, playing some of the wonderful games and, and really enjoying that interactive screen, which, you know, for a child will help hand eye coordination develop and, you know, gives them a sense of being able to change their world, you know, in a way that would have been unknown to many of us um you know which which is great but if that gets in the way of eating of going to bed of needing to go out etc then you know there's a very early sign that um you need to start to establish some boundaries in relation to that so the child has a clear sense of what the expectations are and, and then, you know, trying to give them some notice before you're going to be asking them to stop. I mean, that they're always at a critical point in the game wherever it's time to stop.
1: Thanks, Richard, from Tavistock Clinic, London. So it is possible to become addicted to technology at any age. How else might it affect us? From personal experience, when I go for a coffee with my friends, they can sometimes tune out of the conversation and be checking their emails or Facebook feeds every few minutes. So can all of this extra information and stimulation affect how we interact with those around us? Well, published in the journal eLife this month, Professor Alon Chen and colleagues at the Weizmann Institute Israel developed a new technology for analysing how our environment might shape our social interactions. Well, he conducted this study in mice anyway. So they painted the fur of individual mice with different coloured UV disco paints and then illuminated the mice with a UV lamp and recorded their movements. A computer system then logged behaviours like grooming, sniffing, feeding each other, exploring or simply avoiding the other mice. And they found that adolescent mice that had grown up in a stimulant-rich environment full of games and toys were much more territorial, they didn't share their food as much, and when they did interact, they worked in pairs rather than as a larger group mice growing up in more spartan conditions were more community-minded. So the scientists suggest that this finding in mice ties in with the common belief for humans that our modern stimulation-filled environment encourages individualistic behaviour whilst simpler surroundings give rise to a more developed community life. I spoke to one of the authors of the study about the implications of this result.
2: This system will be very useful to study this type of um, questions. We have in our case, a very specific study in which we just provided the mice during development, during, uh, in a way, adolescence, uh, more, more stimuli. In this case, they became, in a way, less social because each one has much more resources, in a way, that can develop its own territory, and therefore it probably needs less the surrounding compared to the basic uh, group. Uh, again, you can... Uh, Think about human societies and uh, which have much more rich type of um, resources versus the other one, whether there are less or more individuals and uh, I think so it 's easy to see the equivalent
1: Now, obviously, rodents don't spend their time on Facebook or wander around with Twitter open on their mobile phones. They're not continuously bombarded with information from the online world. But what have studies in humans shown us? I caught up with Baroness Susan Greenfield from Oxford University, where she works unpicking the impact of 21st century technologies on the human mind.
4: Certainly, it can be having an effect on attention span. Um certainly we know that there's an important chemical called dopamine that's released in the brain during gaming, and that's related to arousal and addiction and reward. Um, There's also evidence suggesting that that too would be released during social networking, and that um, in social networking, it's neither stressful nor relaxing, but it is very pleasurable. With social networking, there's also issues over empathy and um, sense of identity, evidence that perhaps with social networking where you're relying on that as your main vehicle for relationships, and there's evidence of narcissism and low self-esteem. But I don't want to do simple sound bites because that doesn't do justice to the work because it's only really been going for the last few years. If you think about it, Facebook's only been around since 2007 or so. Um, So it's not as if there are cut-and-dried definitive proof, in inverted commas, that X or Y is the case.
1: Yeah, I think that was a major point there, that the technology is moving so fast and the social structure is changing at such a high rate. Exactly. That you haven't actually got the scientific
4: No, um, no, science, I mean, yet. to do a proper study takes six months or so, and first you need to get the funding, you need to apply for a grant to get the funding and so on. So, you know, the science will always lag behind, and I think people have rather strange expectations of what the science can show, and I often say to my detractors, well, you told me a single experiment, the single smoking gun experiment that you know, will prove conclusively either way this is all good or all bad. And that, of course, is daft because it's obviously neither all good nor all bad. And you have to frame a specific question you're going to test in a specific situation for a specific thing. Um, So I think people that expect of science or scientists simple proof one way or the other, um, you know, need to really recalibrate their expectations of what science can deliver.
1: Thanks to Susan Greenfield. You're listening to the Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. Professor Alan Schneider, director of the Centre for the Mind at Sydney University, has been using technology in another way to electrically induce creativity. Naked scientist Chris Smith speaks to him.
5: Well, the big picture... I guess is inspired by the quote from William Blake. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. So we were confronting the challenging problem of how to artificially induce a less filtered view of the world, one less constrained by preconceptions.
6: In other words, the world that we see is one tinted by past experience. You learn something, and that informs the way that you interpret the world henceforth.
5: Precisely. Our perceptions, our memory, our decisions are based on filtered information. We view the world, in a sense, top-down through concepts, through mental templates, which are built up from our past experience. And, of course, these concepts are crucially important for our survival. They enable us to make rapid predictions about what is most likely based on only partial information, but the strategy leaves us susceptible to certain kinds of perceptual and cognitive errors, visual illusions, false memories, prejudice, and it makes us inclined to connect the dots in ways that are familiar rather than to explore novel interpretations.
6: Which makes it much harder to think outside the box. If you're trying to solve a problem and you're trying to solve a hard problem that other people have grappled with, there's probably going to be an original solution. Going down the same wrong road they have is the wrong approach. You need to think a new way. And if we could find a way to do that, we'd be better off.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's not the wrong approach. It's the very, it's the good approach. <laughs> but it's not going to work if if it doesn't apply. In other words, our observations of the world and the problems we are talking about are strongly shaped by our preconceptions from previous problems, where that didn't work.
6: So, how have you tried to get an angle on what the brain is doing, and how to get around that problem then?
5: Well, what if we could temporarily inhibit this top-down processing, and thereby access a level of perception normally hidden from conscious awareness? Might we be able to have a world which is less preconceived? Of course, you'd only want to do this temporarily. We need our conceptual makeup. We, we don't want to be like an infant. But that's the kind of rationale that's behind our work. So how did you actually tackle this problem? What did you do? We use non-invasive, safe non-invasive transcranial direct current stimulation to inhibit... The left interior temporal lobe, that's an area associated with conceptual processing, labels, and categories. In addition, we simultaneously excited the right anterior temporal lobe, an area associated with insight and novel meaning. The objective was to temporarily induce a less filtered, less assumption-driven cognitive style. And what did you
6: ask people to whom you were doing this to do in order to see if they were thinking in a new way or thinking more originally?
5: Well, we took a sort of standard problem of insight, a matchstick, arithmetic kind of visual problem, and we showed them how to do one class of those problems and then asked them to do a much harder problem that required a novel turn, novel twist. And the people who received direct current stimulation, three times as many of them solved the problem than those... In the control group
6: and the argument would be that because you had to think about the problem in a novel way this suppression of the left side of the brain which normally forces you to think in this hypothesis led familiar or way informed by familiarity that having been turned off they began to think in a novel way and that's what gave them this insight to solve the problem in the new way
5: yeah that's the way we look at it
6: so now you found this what's the next step? Is it to say, right, okay, can we try and apply this to other modalities? So that's a problem-solving task. It's a part visual, part cognition. Are you now going to start looking at other things that might be informed by the same strategy?
5: You're right. Every sensory modality uses the top-down process. So we indeed have been trying to think of other experiments that we could do that would illustrate this concept, and we have a few in mind.
6: Maybe you need to to stimulate your brain to suppress the activity (laughs) in the left anterior temporal lobe to see what comes out. Um, But practically speaking, could you use this for anything? Do you think musicians should plug themselves in? Should mathematicians grappling with tough problems plug themselves in like this to see if they can free their mind?
5: We both suggested that it could be, Richard Chi, and I suggested that it might be a thinking cap. And the concept about a thinking cap, I think many people regard a thinking cap as something that might be a Google retriever, but we don't need that because we have Google. What we really need in the future is a way to connect seemingly disparate pieces of information into a new synthesis. In other words, to look at things afresh. And that is what I would hope a thinking cap could give us a creativity enhancer in that sense. And yes, I think this is something that could be used in the future. I mean, it's a very simple device. It uses a 9-volt battery. What we need to do is try to optimize the configuration of stimulation on the brain. We need to think about the time interval that we want to expose people to. There are many variables here to, to optimize this once you accept the reality or the proof of principle.
1: Thanks to Alan Schneider from Sydney University, speaking with Naked Scientist Chris Smith. So Alan was using non-invasive technology to change behaviour, but Kevin Warwick, cybernetics professor at Reading University, has gone one step further to become one of the world's first cyborgs.
3: Well, I've had a, a number of implants. The, the most successful one was, uh, well, it consisted of 100 electrodes, very small spikes, which were fired into my nervous system, the nervous system in my left arm, to link my nervous system with a computer and then onto the internet. So essentially, we we're using neural signals, that signals from my brain. Uh, to control the robot hand and various pieces of technology, but also to feed signals back from the computer into my nervous system so I could experience extra sensory input, uh, learn to recognize ultrasonic signals, for example, and recognize distance to objects and so on. So I was really looking at uh, extending the abilities of humans by using technologies, implant technologies of that kind.
1: What were your own reasons for wanting to become one of the world's first cyborgs?
3: Well, it was twofold. One was to look at the technology and assess it for looking at helping people that have problems for a therapeutic purpose. People who are paralysed or people who are blind. All sorts of different cases where um, the, the person's brain is functioning perfectly okay but there is a problem get either getting signals from the brain to the outside world for them to move or operate technology or whatever it happens to be, or getting signals into the brain. And it was really looking in a general way, how could people like that be helped? But at the same time, the second aspect was to say, okay, well, if we're linking directly to the brain, then we're no longer restricted by the physical input-output that humans have, the human body, such as the eyes and ears or or hands and legs to move, if you connect directly to the brain, then you can connect up all sorts of other pieces of technology and so the person can have lots of different extra abilities, different senses, and control different things by and from their brain directly. So it was looking at the enhancement side, allowing people to have extra abilities as well as just using the same technology for therapeutic purposes.
1: And what kind of implications for society do you think that this technology has?
3: First point is, I think... We can and will see over the next 10 years all sorts of different neurological problems that will be tackled by using technology of this type. So things that at the moment we couldn't imagine and and maybe chemicals, pharmaceuticals are the best we've got. So things like schizophrenia, for example, I think that is going to be tackled by using this technology. Deep brain stimulation is available now to successfully tackle um, Parkinson's disease, for example, and it's also being used for things like Tourette's syndrome, epilepsy. So these are electrodes deep in the brain that can counteract the effects of a particular problem. And schizophrenia is amongst the the problems, it's a much broader problem, but it's amongst the problems that are now being looked at and initial investigations are being made as to where exactly to to apply electrical currents to overcome the problems, where to stimulate, Um, and I, I think partly it's opening up more of an understanding on the problem, but also with the possibility of actually tackling the problem itself. What
1: do you think was the, um, from your experimentation on yourself, what had the most impact on your life in terms of the kind of extra skill that you gave yourself?
3: Oh, the biggest thing for me, um, my wife also had electrodes implanted and we sent signals from brain to brain, uh, literally communicating electronically directly. And I think in the future, that's going to be the biggest thing of using technology into the brain that we will be able to send signals to communicate directly from brain to brain between humans, humans and machines and so on. And therefore, this form of communication we call speech, which is pretty pathetic technically, will be obsolete before long. We'll communicate just by thinking to each other.
1: How did you communicate with each other?
3: For us, it was a very, very basic thing, a bit like, uh, if you can remember the Morse code and telegraph type signaling, dots and dashes, when my wife closed her hand, my brain received an electronic pulse. So if she closed her hand three or four times, dee, 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 like that, my brain received several pulses. So it was very much of the the first basic type of communication But when we have a much broader connection directly from brain to brain, then clearly it will open up all sorts of communicating in terms of thoughts, images, feelings, emotions, a much broader range of communication than we have at present.
1: Thanks to Kevin Warwick, who started Cyborg Communications with his wife back in 2002. So Kevin is interested in conveying emotions electronically. Aren't emotions part of what defines us as individuals and as subjective and conscious beings? Could computers ever have the power to predict our emotional state and then start to alter our emotions? To find out, I caught up with Professor Peter Robinson, computer scientist at Cambridge University.
7: It's a crucial part of human communication. It's been studied scientifically since Darwin's time. He was interested in the way that we use facial expressions to convey these signals. And people who can't do it are at a social disadvantage. It's people with autism spectrum conditions. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, uh, computers are autistic. They don't recognize these signals. So the computer carries on blithely saying whatever it wants to say or doing whatever it wants to do, and it doesn't look at the expression on your face or the tone of your voice as you interact with it. Mm -hmm. And so we've been looking at ways that we can give computers some sort of emotional awareness.
1: Building clever algorithms that can actually read emotion, that's, that's quite a feat. It must be very complicated maths that you're plugging in there and it must have been a huge amount of emotion reading that you must have had to sift through in order to build the algorithm in the first place.
7: That's right. Well, so uh, right on both counts, so we've worked with our friends in the Autism Research Centre, Simon Baron-Cohen and his team, mm-hmm. uh, and he's interested in real people who have autism spectrum conditions, and so we've drawn a lot on his research work Mm -hmm. into the the theory of emotions. And And then on top of that, we've used, well, all the usual sorts of things that uh, computer scientists use nowadays, and essentially this comes down to machine learning. Uh, Rather than actually writing a program that tabulates exactly how to interpret these signals, social signals that people are giving out, we write systems that learn from examples. We have lots of video clips and audio clips of actors expressing emotions, and we can use those to train our systems. So in this context, um, we know the probability that you'll have particular facial expressions if you're feeling a, a particular emotion. We can calculate those, and Bayes' theorem allows us to turn it the other way around so that mm. when we see the facial expressions, we can work out the probability of different mental states. One of the projects is looking at ways in which we can make computer games that might be able to help children, say, with Asperger's syndrome, who are often very intelligent. They just lack the ability to read these emotions. They know they have a problem. They want to do something about it, and we can make computer games that help them learn to read these expressions in Mm. other people.
1: Um, And so how sensitive or how accurate is this computer at reading, gauging people's emotions?
7: Also an interesting question. The sensitivity uh, is fairly good. Um, Different people have different magnitudes with which they express emotions. Um, Different cultures are more expressive or not. But the accuracy is, well, it's, It's not like the sort of computer system that you're used to, your spreadsheet. This does not give you a precise, accurate, precise answer. The emotions are things that different people perceive differently. There's a a consensus view. um, But even when we show our video clips to a human audience, we're uh, unlikely to get them uh, all agreeing exactly on what they're seeing. Um, So if we give them, a, say, a six-way forced choice, we get maybe a... 70% 70% agreement rate. Um, but that turns out to be about the same sort of agreement uh, accuracy that you'd get if you were showing it to people uh, rather than the computer. Mm-hmm. So it's quite important when you're using this sort of information from the computer system, the sensors that are reading these social signals, to understand that they're a, a hint rather than an absolute descript- description. And that means that the way that the computers react to this information has got to be rather different. And we haven't really had uh, much time to to even think about how we use this information, how we change the way uh, the computer is operating in response to the emotions that it's detecting in its users. Uh, We did some trials. We were particularly interested in in the problem of car drivers uh, dealing with busy roads, um, unfamiliar environments, and increasing amounts of technology in the car. And we wanted to see if we could detect when a car driver was uh, upset by the environment and perhaps adapt accordingly. Uh, And we set up some simulations for this. And the thing that we observe, first of all, is that actually most of the time in our driving simulator, people are just completely neutral. They don't actually show any emotions, and it's rather rare to see things. So there's then the mm, even more difficult question of what you do in response to the information. So again, to take the example of a car driver, if you see a car driver who is getting aroused and frustrated and angry, actually, it's rather a bad idea to have a computer system that patronisingly tells them to calm down. Actually, the computer has to mirror the emotion of the person that it's interacting with, but lower intensity, firm, but not offensive.
1: Thanks to Peter Robinson from Cambridge University. We close the show with a question that listener Peter McGree got in touch with. He asks, could such rapid advancements with technology lead to higher levels of social inequality? Tamara Rukerts, marketing tech expert from TRMNC. Well, certainly a lot of technology does
0: confer an efficiency advantage on people who use it. So if you have a smartphone, there potentially is an advantage over someone who has a feature phone. If you use the internet, you potentially have an economic advantage over somebody who does not use the internet. These kind of disparities in access to technology do have socioeconomic implications. They can sometimes even serve to increase the divide. And I think that's why it's so important to bear that in mind when new technologies come on stream, so that fewer people get left behind. It's really easy to gloss over the fact that over 20% of the UK population have yet to go online. That's more than 10 million people. And 16 million people lack basic internet skills, like being able to send an email or browsing the internet. Potentially, that would be like a social or an economic handicap. You might find it extremely difficult to get a job. Over 90% of jobs these days actually have some ICT
1: component to them. Thanks to tomorrow, Rukerts. That's all we've got time for. I'll be back again next month. If you've got any brain questions or comments about this show, then please get in touch. It's hannah at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Neuroscience or you can post on the Naked Scientists Facebook page. Also, you'll find the full transcript for this episode and other Naked Neuroscience episodes on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience I'm Hannah Critchlow and this is Naked Neuroscience in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association See you next month to open our minds